Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. I'm going to start with a story that I have uh, never told. In 14 years of pastoral ministry and preaching, I have not shared this story. And a lot of me, if I'm honest, just feels kind of insecure about it. It feels surreal. It feels like it didn't happen. And even when I was talking with uh, some people at, at the dining room table just this week, Andrea reminded me, like, directly after that happened, I remember when you would tell this story, you would say, right, right, babe? And, and that's, how, that's what happened, right? Isn't that right? And even in that, I felt just kind of like surreal and and insecure, and that was 14 years ago. And so what I want to talk about is uh, my calling uh, into ministry. And so uh, many of you in this room that know me, know my story, you know that the story of I woke up, I didn't go to church, I didn't believe in Jesus, and I woke up in my girlfriend's bed, and I was called to faith, and I was called to student ministry, and just like that. And then I roll over, and I look at my girlfriend, who's now my wife, and I say, hey, babe, I think the Lord just called me to be a student pastor. And then she says, you need to change some things about yourself, right? And you guys know that story, yeah, for the most part. Most of you in the room know that story. If you didn't know it, now you do. That was week one. There's three more weeks that come uh, after that story. And so that's week one. I'm going to share the whole thing with you. It'll take me five total minutes to do. Uh, the second week of that, we're sitting there talking, she and I, and I'm like, how am I supposed to be a youth pastor? Like, I don't have any good gifts. I don't wear flannels at the time. I don't play guitar, still don't play guitar. You know, I don't know anything about the Bible. Like, how am I supposed to do this? And then, quote, I said, I feel like God was on lunch while I was on the assembly line. I do not have any good gifts. Uh, we didn't go to church at that, or she went to church. I did not go to the church at that time. She takes me to church with her, this little church in Granite City. Pastor George comes out. There's 12 people in the congregation. Their youth group was probably 88 years old during this time. And, and so there's 12 of them there, a bunch of folks that are much, much older than I am. Uh, and little Pastor George comes out, very old, elderly man. And he says, hey, right out the gate, he says, good morning. Some of you feel like God was on lunch while you were on the assembly line. But I'm here to tell you that that's not the case. And I was like, what a coincidence. That's very interesting that that would happens. So I'm on my head about that, right? I'm like, that's just a coincidence. God doesn't do things like that. I'm new to the, I'm like eight days in on the faith, okay? I'm like, that doesn't happen. That same week, sorry, that next week, week three, we're talking about this. And Andrew and I are talking more. And I'm like, dude, I don't know anything about the Bible. Like, how am I supposed to teach the Bible to students? I don't know anything about the Bible. The only story I know is Saul's conversion to Paul. Saul killed people. God knocked him off his horse and saved him. And she's like, yeah, that's like you. And I was like, no, that's not like me. I'm not that bad. I didn't do that. I did some bad things, but not, but not killing people. And she's like, yeah, but it's like the same thing. Like he just radically changed your life. And so fast forward, we go to that little church and Pastor George comes out Sunday morning, 12 people are sitting there and he comes out on the stage and he goes, hey, I had a whole sermon prepared. But this morning when I woke up, I really felt like the Lord wanted me to preach Saul's conversion to Paul. And then I'm sitting there and I go, pardon my French here, what the freaking crap? <laughs> In the middle of all these, not all these, in the middle of 12 people, much, much older, they all turn and look at me. I'm like, sorry, guys, I'm just having a moment, right? <laughs> like, if I can't have a moment in church, where can I have one, you know? And so, what the freaking crap? So, anyway, wildly inappropriate from them, just moderately inappropriate for our crowd, amen? And so, 
Anyway, so I'm like, no way. Like, there is no way, like, God is speaking that clearly to me. Then week four comes. Week four is interesting in that you have to know about my story. While I don't think I was an alcoholic, I drank a lot, and I found a lot of my identity in drinking and partying. That was a big part of who I was. And so I was abstaining from alcohol for the time because I did feel that that's what God had called me to do. We go, I get invited to a going away party for a manager of mine. And this is where it gets really dark. So I go and I meet him at this bar and a group of friends that are there and I'm standing from drinking. And while I'm at this bar, everything just gets really dark. Not physically dark, but spiritually dark. Random people start trying to buy me drinks. Men trying to buy me drinks that I don't know. Women trying to buy me drinks that I don't know. That don't happen, okay? You guys know, you know that don't happen. And so ladies are trying to buy me drinks. Dudes are trying to buy me drinks. It's super eerie, really, really uncomfortable, more than just one, like a, a multitude of people. It climaxes where this guy comes, very big man, probably 6'3", big dude. He's got two beers in his hand, and he hits me in the chest with them. And he says, take the drinks. And I was like, okay, man, like, I don't want that, I don't want that trouble. So I'm like, okay. So I take them, and I set them down, and I'm talking with my manager here. And um, just out of habit, I'm just sitting there talking. And so I just take a sip, and not paying any attention, just listening and take a sip. I immediately get pains, like excruciating pains in my stomach, just immediate, boom, right in my stomach. It's like, oh, gosh, I have done something I'm not supposed to do right now. And so I go to text Andrea. I have, whenever Sprint was good, a Sprint flip phone, T9, anyone? Or you're like, one, two, three, 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 four, four, you know what I mean? So I'm T9 in there. So those of you that are, you know, 27 or older, you know what I'm talking about. If you're not, you're like, what? Doesn't Siri just do that for you? And um, so I'm T9 in there. I'm like, hey, I'm trying to leave. And I hit, this is a true story, I hit sin, and all it sent to her was the word God. And then I was like, that's not what I did. And so I T-niner again, going through the hassle, I hit sin again, and the word repent sent to her. Not what I had sent her, but the word repent. And I like kind of knew in that moment, like, this is the Lord telling me, like, I've got to get out of here. And so I immediately snatch a friend's keys for his car. I steal his car and leave. Literally, I took his keys, left, didn't even care about how he got home. And it's like, there's this dark, the whole time, this dark, demonic, heavy presence around me. And as I'm leaving, and this is where the story thickens a bit more, there are three stop sign, three stoplights on 159. They're all green for me, which means they're all red the other way. And at three consecutive stoplights, I'm coming up on this green light, a black car blows through a red light. And then it happened again, then happened again. I had to hit my same on my brakes at every single light. And in that moment, moment I knew there was something trying to kill me. I had no doubt. I didn't know enough to call it spiritual warfare. I didn't know enough to call it demonic oppression. I did not know enough about that. But I knew that there was a very real presence trying to kill me. I get sick on the side of the road on the way home. It's like my body was beginning, like, failing me in different ways. I'm totally freaking out, right? I have no words. I have no, nothing like I have now, no equi- no, uh, none of the goods that I would have now in that moment. But I knew that there was something dark and demonic that wanted to take my life. So I did what any man would do, and I called Jeff Nail. And so I called Jeff, and if you don't know him, he's one of the pastors on staff, and we started uh, Heights, before we merged, we started Heights together. And I called him, and he talked to me all the way from Belleville, all the way back to Edwardsville. And then I get home, I sit on the recliner in our house, and he goes, you home? I was like, yeah. And he goes, well, amen. And everything dark lifted out of the house. Walked straight to the room, lay down, went to sleep. Didn't have that weird tingly feeling like someone's looking at you. You know that feeling you can get sometimes. I just went straight to bed and I slept 
like a baby. Four or five days later, Andrea's mom calls, my mother-in-law calls, and she says, hey, there's an opening at a student camp, student Christian camp. We need counselors. Would you like to be, would you like to come help student ministry? And that was my first entrance into student ministry, and it took four weeks to get there. Now, why do I share that? One, I have a couple reasons. One, because I've always felt insecure about it, which means that was probably something other than Jesus telling me not to share that. Two, because I think spiritual warfare is really taboo to talk about. We talk about it as pastors with you regularly and often. You all regularly don't talk about those things among yourselves. The second reason I share that with you is this. There's a very real Satan, and he wants to kill you. Like the big idea for today I borrowed from Mark Sigma from four years ago is this. Satan wants you dead. He wants to kill literally everything that you love and hold dear. You specifically, your marriage, your kids, your vocation, every sense of security that you have, every ounce of hope that you have, he wants to kill it. Every dream, every aspiration, anything that you desire for the future, he wants to kill every single bit of it. Not a little bit of it, church. Every single aspect of it. There's a very real Satan that wants to kill you. He cannot because death only leads to life for us as Christians. But he wants to. Last week, we saw four trumpets um, being blown. And so there was uh, money was affected, travel was affected, basic needs were affected. Um, all the assumed luxuries that one would have were affected. If you've missed Revelation, you've got to listen to it and get caught up because it's too much for me to catch you up on at this point in the game. Everything, though, last week, everything unrighteous, everything, not everything, a third of everything, unholy, unrighteous, evil, had to be destroyed. If you remember, what did I call yes, What did I call last week? I called it what type of day, if you were here. Do you remember? One more time. Demo day. We called it demo day, right? Anytime you're going to come into a project and you're going to recreate something new, it begins with demo day. We just demoed the new church building so they could start putting up walls. Andrew and I demoed the whole main level of our house so that we could rebuild out the main level of our house. Jesus, in a very real sense, starting last week or kind of continuing into last week, is um, effectively pursuing, accomplishing demo day. This is another aspect. This is a continuation of that. And so what we get to see in the text today is that where God started in creation, just affecting creation last week, he's going to specifically allow humanity now to be affected in a very real and in a very spiritual way. Now, for those of you that are coming into Revelation already freaked out, right? already super anxious because you've had some pastor that's bombarded you with a book of Revelation, hoping you would respond in some legalistic and religious way, let me remind you today that this is not a picture of what happens to the saints. He says, do not hurt those who are sealed in Christ. Do not hurt those whose name has, uh, whose Jesus' name is on their forehead. This is for the unrighteous. And keep in mind that the earth is so unrighteous during this time, as Jess read, that even after this happens, they still don't repent. They still turn to sorcery, magic, to all these idols. In two chapters from now, God is in his grace. He's going to send messengers to them. And what do they do? Do you remember? They kill the messengers that God sends, and then they dance and sing around their dead bodies, and they pass out gifts to one another like it's Christmas. Like, that's what's happening in the text. And so what we're seeing here in the text is that God isn't just allowing unrighteousness to run free, but rather, God is taking evil and allowing it to conquer evil. 
which shows how evil it is. You know what I'm saying? Like that they're willing to conquer themselves just for that sense of whatever they get, evil that they get out of that. And so the righteous are kept safe. Chuck Swindoll, I don't think this will be on the screen unless, unless Tristan has it, but Chuck Swindoll has a quote. He says, as we study John's vision and observe the armies of darkness battling in the future, we can better understand how similar spirits of wickedness try to torment us today. As we've said over and over again, the book of Revelation is a series of windows that John is looking into. As John allows us to peek into this window, it's not just something that happens in the future. It is most certainly a picture of what is happening right now in many of our lives, even those of us who are righteous. We catch a glimpse of our enemy. We get to see his schemes, and we understand that the plan of destruction is not just destruction. It's complete and total annihilation of everything that is not him before he is defeated. And so there are three points that I want to give to you as we get into this text today. I have a lot to say. We'll get as far as we can, and then, you know, we'll pray and have the team come up and take communion. Uh, The three points are Satan's intentions are revealed in this text. We have Satan's plan for destruction, and then we have the saint's response. No matter what, we'll get to the saint's response, because we've got to get to hope in the gospel, amen? It is not very hopeful outside of that. All right, Satan's intentions revealed. If you're ready, say ready. If you're sure, say I'm sure. All right, here, let's hit it. Revelation 8, 13, Tristan. Revelation 8, 13, and the final scripture from last week we have to use this week to start us off. It said, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying out with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So we can pause right there for a moment. Here we have a transition in the text, okay? And so this is pretty common in the book of Revelation. We see that something new is happening. John regularly leads us to that. He would say things like, I saw and I went and I, and so on and so forth. And he's transitioning us here in the text to reveal there is something new that is happening. And so that transitions what I mentioned earlier. Last week, we saw the four trumpets that were blown, and they directly affected creation. And then now there's this new transition. Something new is happening in the text, and this angel is flying over, and he's saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Here comes the three more trumpets. And what he's saying is that it's about to get a lot worse. Like what, what just happened was kind of child's play in comparison of what, to what is about to happen here. Now, ver- chapter 9, verse 1, Tristan. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen, pin that, that's past tense, from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He was given the key, keep in mind. He did not take it. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. So the first thing that we see here is that this star most certainly falls, but what we really get to see here is that God, in his sovereignty, is completely in control of everything that's about to happen here. That's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around, I understand, but that's true. If we were to, we will read through five, we've not read it yet, but verse one said Satan was given the keys. In a moment, we'll read verse three. It says the locusts are given power. When we read four, it's going to say they were told not to harm anyone. Verse five is going to say they were allowed to torment four or five days. And so God in his sovereignty is kind of letting this unrighteous run free on the unrighteous, not on the righteous, but on this 
unrighteous. And so the beauty of the text and where we can find comfort is knowing that God most certainly in his sovereign control holds the keys to Hades and death. It is him who is sovereign over every single aspect of everything that has happened. God tells them what they can do and God tells these demonic, uh, I don't know, oppressors what they are not allowed to do. And so my first thought on that is that's absurd. Like that's my first thought. Like, why would God do that? Why would God use unrighteousness to further righteousness? Why would God use evil to further righteousness? And then as I began to jot that down in my notes, I was very quickly reminded of the cross. That is that not exactly what God did? Like, God allowed the evil of humanity to come into relationship or in concert with the evil of Satan himself and his demonic oppressors to lead humanity, the very ones that Jesus came to save, to kill Jesus. And what's, what shows the darkness of Corey's heart, and maybe you can come alongside me in this, is that when I think about that in light of Jesus, I think, well, yeah, that's okay. That's Jesus, right? Anyone else? I'm like, well, yeah, that's Jesus. That's what we believe. But then we see like the same thing happening here with a bit of a twist where God is using unrighteousness to come against unrighteousness to ultimately still bring redemption. Because what he's going to do is he's going to allow the two-thirds to repent. He's going to allow the two-thirds to turn to him. And so when it comes to Jesus, I'm like, dang, well, that's okay. Anybody else? Anybody can just be real for a minute? Anybody else think like, yeah, that's okay. It's Jesus, right? Now, what's beautiful about this is this. If you want to understand what Jesus experienced whenever Jesus was on the cross, you read Revelation chapter 9. Like, if you want to really get a picture of the demonic oppression and influence that came against Christ whenever he willingly keeps in mind, willingly goes to the cross for us. It wasn't like he went on a vacation when he went to the cross. He had all of the effects of sin all across all of the cosmos battering down against his body, both physically and spiritually. It would have looked like this. Man, a legion, an army of demonic oppressors coming against him on the cross. This is what it would have Look like, if you want to better engage, what did Jesus genuinely have to endure so that he could be the only one that could resurrect? It would be this, what happens in Revelation chapter 9. And keeping in mind, he willingly endures that for us. We don't even want to read Revelation chapter 9, yeah? I most certainly didn't want to preach on it, let's be honest. I was hoping it fell on David's week, right? Like, <laughs> but here we are. If you want to know what it was like for Jesus to endure the evil of the world to save you, I would venture to say it probably felt and looked a lot like this. That's the point that I'm making. First thing that happens is a star falls from heaven, similar to what we saw last week. We saw a star wormwood fall from heaven, and it fell, and it hit the water, and it made the water bitter, if you remember, and then many people died from that. Some argue, and I think I would even agree that this star is probably the same star that has fallen, just a clearer picture of that Star, And so what the Apostle John has said is he says that this star has already entered into the world. He talks, something happening in the future, but he talks about it in the past tense. This is a star that had fallen. What's great about that and what's helpful is in Luke chapter 10, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth. And so all that I have read and I can surmise myself here is that this is most certainly Satan that has already fallen. And he's just been waiting on these keys to be given to him, that this is that, that, this is that angel that had fallen. That star has a name, and he tells us that name here in a little bit, but it is a fallen angel. And I think this is what Satan looks like up close. And what does he do when he comes on the scene, man? He immediately grabs the keys 
He's been waiting on this moment. He's been waiting to wreak demonic evil havoc on the world. He can't wait. I picture him like salivating at the mouth like a dog in front of his bone. Just can't wait to bring down hell literally on everyone. And so he gets the keys. He opens up the shaft and it looks like this crazy locust swarming. We're going to get in that. Verse 3. Then from the smoke, verse 3, then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth, right? They didn't assume it. They were given it. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. You still with me on that? They were allowed, you see that? They were allowed to torment them for five months but not kill them, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. So we're going to try to unpack some of this for a minute. Your first thought when you read this, uh, mine was, the scene, and if you haven't seen the Avengers yet, team, okay, Spoiler, I guess. First Avengers, okay. The scene in the Avengers, whenever the sky literally rips apart in New York and every, all those aliens begin to flood into it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm the only nerd in here? Okay, thank you for coming alongside me there. Yeah, that's the first picture I get. And then I would very quickly say, don't let your imagination downplay the demonic. This is far worse than a comic book. Far worse than a children's film. These locusts that he's referring to are simply soldiers. That's what that means. They're not literal locusts. They're not Apache helicopters like people want to say. They're not drone strikes that are happening. They're not reading 2022 into the text. It's a physical army that is coming. The imagery that the Apostle John is giving is imagery that he himself would understand and that the first century church would most certainly understand. How do we know? Because everything that happens in this chapter, in last chapter, like I said, has come directly out of the Old Testament. Joel chapter 1, verse 4 through 6, and Joel chapter 2 especially, but we don't have time. Joel chapter 1, 4 through 6, Tristan Az says this. What, are the, what, what the cutting locusts left, the swarming locusts have eaten. What the swarming locusts left, the hopping locusts has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Using imagery, awake you drunkards and weep and wail all you drinkers of wine because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Here it is. For a nation has come, upon, come against my land, powerful and beyond number, and its teeth are like lion's teeth, and it has fangs of a lioness. All throughout the Old Testament, we have them using imagery, describing what it would look like for a large military force to be coming upon Israel to bring judgment. This is no different than that moment right here. Joel gives in the same description as we see here in Revelation chapter 9. The locusts are an army. The locusts are not something out of a Dr. Seuss book that have little lion teeth that are tiny little things wearing, I don't know, little breastplates of armor. Like this is a full-blown demonic armor the army that is coming towards the rest of the unrighteous. This is an army that is going to attack and kill and destroy one-third of everything that is unrighteous that is living here. It seems to me, then, that the reference here to five months is simply stating that God is going to allow this to happen for the life cycle that he chooses. Now, a locust, according to research, has an average expectancy, life expectancy, of about five months. So maybe it's a literal five months. If that's the case, then praise the Lord, yeah? But if it's not a literal five months, then what we do know is that it's going to happen. This type of abuse is going to come. This type of torment is going to come for the life cycle that God himself has designed. 
that he sees fit to allow to happen. So maybe a literal five months, probably five months symbolizing that it's going to happen for as long as God wants it to. Ultimately, what we need to know about it is that this is judgment on the unrighteous. That's what he's pointing out. That's what the Apostle John is laying out for us. It is judgment on the unrighteous by the unrighteous. They are literally willing to murder their own for the sake of murder and torment alone. That is evil, right? To quote David Seaton as he was preaching Revelation, it's going to get bad. It's going to get really bad. That's what he said one day. I was like, ooh, that's an understatement of the year, Pastor, right there. <laughs> Verse 6, here's how bad it's going to get. Listen to this. And in those days, people will seek death, and they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. It is going to be so bad, think, that, that people are going to want to die, and they're not going to be able to muster up a way to make it happen. That all of the comforts that they would once seek, even their comforts, they won't be able to turn to to bring death upon themselves. That's the type of torment that they're talking about, that those who are rich will not be able to purchase death. For those who wish the will death upon themselves will simply not find the will in themselves to bring upon death upon themselves. They will be kept alive. It will be suffering that will be on, beyond our wildest imaginations for these individuals. And God is going to keep them alive. Now, the question I would have is, and that I wrote down is, Why? Why would God do that? Why would God keep these unrighteous alive? And I think in light of the story of God, I think he keeps them alive to show them what it truly looks like in the absence of his grace. That's the only way you're ever going to turn and repent to the Lord, is if you see your life and you understand who you are completely alienated and separated from Christ Jesus. Then that will drive you back. Verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. Again, this is just imagery from the Old Testament. On their heads with what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. We read that in Joel. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Maybe literal, maybe not. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name is Satan. His name is in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in the Greek, he is called Apollyon. Everything referenced here is, an, again, Old Testament language referencing the army that is coming to invade this unrighteous. I'm going to keep drawing you back to here. Like what it, what it, it cannot mean for us, what it did not mean for them is what we keep saying. And so the Apostle John here is capturing this imagery as best as he can. He's writing, I imagine, just as fast as he can. He's saying there's this battle that is underway, that these demons are coming. These soldiers are running rampant. Satan is standing at the head of this thing, and he's kind of orchestrating this whole battle plan. His name is Abaddon and Apollyon, which just simply means destroyer in both Hebrew and then also in the Greek. He is a destroyer of lives, a destroyer of souls. He is a destroyer, not just in the future church, but right now. What are the intentions of Satan? First point, to destroy, to kill literally everything to obliterate and annihilate everything that we find holy or good or just or righteous in our lives. That's what he wants to do. There's a lot of things I want to keep saying. I'm going to keep bumping. Satan's plan for the second point then. Okay, this is the second point. Satan's plan for destruction. Keep in mind, the first point, the first woe was just a description of what's to come. It wasn't even an actual woe yet. Now the second point. Satan's plan for destruction, verse 13. 
Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Tag that, underline it in your Bible, highlight it. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, if you keep in mind, there's four horsemen that are being held back by the four angels, if you've been with us in Revelation. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year, were released to kill now a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard the number. He doesn't say I counted the number. He says I heard the number. So John sees and hears the sixth trumpet, and behold, the four horsemen who were being held at bay. If you remember, Pastor David preached on that. You had a black, white, red, pale horseman. You guys there for that? Who's there for that? Right? They're being held at bay. If you can think back a couple chapters. Now, those four horsemen are being let loose to kind of wreak the havoc that Pastor Davis walked us through that those four horsemen wreak havoc. And the ways that they do, now they're being totally let loose to affect one-third of all of the population of all of humanity. And so they, John says these horsemen, this war, this army is coming from the great river Euphrates. That is another Old Testament reference. If you read the Old Testament regularly, whenever Israel had an army that was coming against them to bring judgment in the writings, it would say they're coming from the great river Euphrates. They're over there by the great river Euphrates. It was just kind of a common word from like, we would say something like, oh, it's over by the arch. You would be like, oh, it must be over in St. Louis, right? Or if it's over in Belleville, then you would understand it's on the south side of 159. Like this is the same thing that's happening here. So as he's pinning this down, he's saying they're coming from over there, over there in that place, specifically that place where the army comes from to bring judgment on God's people, except for this is the unrighteous. And then he says, I heard the, I heard the number. He doesn't say like, it doesn't mean he heard just only 10,000 times 10,000. He's writing down. In the Greek, he writes a myriad of myriad, which is 30,000 times 30,000. He's saying there is an innumerable amount of hosts that were coming. It's an innumerable army that is coming against all of this, and they're going to sweep through and destroy a third of everything. Impossible to count, but whoa, my gosh, could he hear them, right? Just a picture, kind of think about it. Have you ever heard of horses trotting by you, man? It rumbles the ground. Think about this, 30,000 times 30,000 on horseback, riding in to destroy everything. He's riding, I imagine, frantically. What are they doing? They're bringing judgment. That's all they're doing. And in the most roundabout way, they're bringing judgment upon themselves. And God is allowing them to do that. Verse 17. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates of color and fire. This is all imagery of judgment from the Old Testament. They wore breastplates of color, of fire, and of sapphire and sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. All imagery for judgment. Verse 18. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur. All image for judgment coming out of their mouths. Verse 19, for the power of the horses in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Every single word that John is giving, he's just writing out here. This is what is coming. This is the judgment that is coming. This is the justice of the Lord that is coming. This is what the day of the Lord is writing. God is using evil to judge evil. And one would think now, what would the people do? Wouldn't they repent? Wouldn't they turn? Wouldn't they? Well, you know the spoiler, right? Because we read it, but you would think they would turn. You would think they would repent. You would think that folks would 
respond to the gospel, but they don't. Verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. They simply do not repent. Okay, so what do we do with all that? We have, um, I have about four minutes left, but we're going to go over. So tell the Heights Kids people sorry, okay? Uh, let Jess do that. It'd be a good introduction for her. So <laughs> they don't repent, okay? The, the picture that we see, this window that we get to see into is not just a God bringing, it's not just God bringing harm on unrighteous. Like this is a picture of justice. And not only is it a picture of justice, but this is God revealing to us through John how dark and evil the world is, how dark and evil the world is apart from God's grace and mercy in their lives. And then I would extend and push a little bit further to say this is God allowing us to see what isn't generally just happen in the future, but a real genuine episode of what's happening in many of our lives right now. While you might not have a little demonic locust with long hair and dreadlocks at the end of your bed, you most certainly have a Satan that wants to kill you and a demonic host that will oppress. Christians cannot be possessed by demons. We have the Holy Spirit, but we can most certainly be oppressed. And one of the primary ways that we see that oppression come is in our attempt to run back to sin again and again and again. The Bible says like a dog returns to its vomit, so also we do our sin. Have you never sat for a minute and just thought, why would I continue to pursue something that ultimately wants to kill me? Have you never found yourself when you're waging war against the sin and you're, you're kind of winning in God's grace, by God's grace and mercy, you're doing good, you're doing good, you're doing good, and then what happens? The scripture says the enemy comes back like seven soldiers and attacks. So while this is happening in the future, church, it's most certainly happening right now. Uh, to still Mark Sickman's big idea, Satan wants you dead. He also gave us 10 points that I have tweaked and turned into seven. And I want to try to, as quickly as I can, give you seven ways that the, Satan is killing you right now. The first way that Satan is killing you right now is through worry and anxiety. Death by worry and anxiety. Anxiety. We've talked about this a great deal over the last two years. Some of you are more consumed with politics than you are with Christ. It's destroying your family. You feel uncertain about the world. You feel certain, uncertain about finances. You feel uncertain about how your 401k is going to go. You have, I have talked with at least 10 people now that were so scared of the book of Revelation that while they've been Christians for a decade, they have never even read the book. Satan wants to kill you. Think about that. The, the very book that reveals who Christ is, the very word that put on flesh, by the way, there is a darkness that has led you to fear it. What is there to fear in Christ? But he wants to kill you with worry and anxiety, which then can also lead to death by legalism and religion. In light of that control that comes, typically anxiety is rooted in the lack of control that you're starting to realize. In light of control, death by legalism and religion, some of you are dying right now under the weight of religion. You're trying to perform. You're trying to earn your way into the kingdom of God, you would, in one hand, you would say, I believe in the grace and mercy of Jesus, yet you are more hard on yourself than anyone else in your whole life. Setting under the weight of self-condemnation. Who brings self-condemnation to you if the book of Romans chapter 8 says there is no self-condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? 
right? He wants to steal. He wants to kill. He wants to destroy even your attempt at good works. He wants to remove the very grace and mercy of the gospel from your life. That is one of the ways he is aiming to destroy you. Death by loneliness and victimization. This is those who are kind of ridden with this idea or this narrative in their life that no one cares, no one pursues, no one invites, no one involves me, no one's reaching out, no one. I had someone reach out to me the other day and they said, Corey, I talked with a family who said they came to Heights for three weeks and they couldn't get plugged into community. I said, you know what? We jack up a lot of things. Uh, That's one of the things we don't. Like you have a QR code on the seat. You have weekly announcements that go out, weekly emails that go out, social media that goes out on Facebook, Instagram, an app that gives you missional communities by proximity. We have literally, you have a newcomer hangout, personal invites from pastoral staff. You have every week, if you're up here, you got invited into an MC. I didn't say it today, but you're invited to my MC. There's a personal invite. Now you can no longer say, no one invites me, right? But think about it. Like that victimization of no one cares, no one pursues, no one. And I don't have a lot of pet peeves, church. I don't have a lot of pet peeves when it comes to pastoring the saints. But one of my number one pet peeves is when I sit down with someone at a coffee shop and they tell me that. No one cares, no one loves, no one. And I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, there are 200 plus adults in our church. And I'm sitting with you. Like, you're the one out of hundreds. Why do I not matter? Well, you're the pastor. It's what you're supposed to do. Exactly. And I'm modeling it for everyone else. Like, why am I not enough? More so, did Jesus not go to the cross? Like, he lived the perfect life, dies, the whole, dies a horrific death. Revelation 9 is revealing what that would have looked like for him. Sends you his Holy Spirit so you're ever connected with him for eternity. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Keeps you sealed in Christ. Why is he not enough? Like that's death by victimization. There's a real Satan that wants you to wake up in the morning and say, no one cares, no one loves, no one pursues to remove the grace and mercy of the gospel from your life. But we know for certain that's not true because we have a real Jesus who hung, yeah? Death by defeat and loss. Uh, We've had multiple um, funerals in the last couple weekends, actually, the last running couple weekends. Have you ever met someone that immediately gets hit with doubt after loss? Isn't it interesting that they would begin to doubt the very God that has secured their loved one's salvation if they're in Christ? How can that happen? There's a real Satan that has come that has said, you need to actually doubt the very one who has your brother, your sister, your friend sealed in himself. Like how demonic must he be? But yet we see folks that are ridden with Grief, they're ridden with loss, they're ridden with death. Some of you in this room have experienced loss. Maybe it's your first time back in a long time. I know you have friends, family, brothers, sisters that have experienced loss and have said, that's why I stopped going to church. That's why I stopped pursuing. The very one who keeps them safe in, in, the, in himself are the ones that they are led to walk away from. Death by addiction. Addiction to porn, addiction to alcohol. Well, it's not a drug, it's over-the-counter. I just help self-medicate a bit. Addiction. The problem with your addiction, with your drug, whether it be drugs, alcohol, over-the-counter, screen, relationships, sex, your marriage, your family, whatever it may be, the problem with your addiction is that your drug is laced with death. And you keep running back to it again and again. And again, and just like these soldiers that are coming to swarm, man, it is destroying your life, destroying your family, 
destroying your kids, destroying. If you're going to run to anything, run back to the cross, church, again and again and again, because he's the only drug worth taking in. He's the only one that says, no, 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 I'm going to give you life through death, my death, not yours. An idol promises life, but only delivers death. Jesus is the only one that says, I will give you life through my death. Come to me again. Come to me again. Come to me again and again and again. And he is good, merciful. Death by comfort and boredom. You show me a Christian that's bored, I'll show you a Christian that doesn't live on mission. I don't know how you can read this and be bored. 14 years at it, I haven't found a, a, a single day to be boring yet. 14 years reading. What do you want? You want history? You like the History Channel? It's in here. You want some romance? It's in here. You want excitement and thrills, murder mystery? You like the Kardashians? Read the book of Jacob. Read, read about Jacob. They're having birthing wars, right? It's hysterical when you read it and sad. Like, how do you find some boredom? Genuinely, right? The, the problem with your comfort is that you're, in your pursuit of comfort, you've left your calling. In your pursuit of comfort, you left your calling to live on mission. But you can't be bored if you're actively li- living on mission in your neighborhood, in your workplace, at the gym, everywhere you go. You want a thrill? Talk to someone about Jesus. No, that's too scary. That's the point. Get out of your comfort zone, right? And actually pursue Christ and all he's done. I have one minute until this service is supposed to be completely over. <laughs> death by comfort, death by boredom. So what do we do with, how do we respond to this? Why don't you go ahead and stand with me and the team can come up and then I'll close this out. First off, I would talk with the MC leader about these things, these seven things. I'll put them out on social media and group me for you this week so you can see them. Uh, secondly, if you're here and you're not plugged into an MC, I think today should be the day. I think you should get plugged in. If you've been here longer than six weeks, it's time to sign up, get plugged in. The saint's response here is this, as the team sets up, let me just lead you through this. Chapter 10, I didn't read, and I'm not going to preach on, and I don't know that we'll preach on it next week either, but chapter 10, there's this angel that comes down, and he gives this scroll to John, and he tells John to take this scroll and to eat the scroll. It's no different than the book of Ezekiel, when the same thing happened to Ezekiel. It's all the same imagery as I've said over and over again. Revelation 10, 8 says this. We'll close with this as they're leading us out here. It says, in the voice I heard from God from Heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it, just like he did in Ezekiel. Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter, as he said, verse 11. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And so the way that we respond to Revelation chapter 9 should be the way that we respond as Christians every day. And we should feast upon the word of God. That's all he had John do is he says, John, take and eat this. It's no different than Ezekiel. Whenever Ezekiel, when God says, take and eat this, he says that the scroll was written with lamentation and sorrow and mourning. And so when we, when we read Revelation 9, there should be a, a bit of us that says, man, like, these are our family. Like a third of creation, 3.2 billion people. That's a lot of people that we would know. And, and so that what we should not do is come at it with a great deal of 
pride and arrogance and beat people to death with this thing, but rather when we read it, we should think, man, that's women and men that we might know one day that are coming in future generations, that there's mourning and there's sorrow and there's sadness. We should genuinely lament at the coming of the day of the Lord. Nothing pride and prideful and arrogant in it. It should be a, a moment of sorrow for us. And then we should feast on the God's word as he says. And it makes it, as you do, man, it makes you bitter, doesn't it? Like you read that, you think, my God, what is happening? And at the same time, there's an incredible amount of celebration, church, because we know that there is a Jesus that stands at the head of this thing. And he gives us grace and he gives us mercy and he's done literally everything possible to see fit that we can get to enter into his kingdom. As we enter into communion is the final way that we respond, man. That's what communion is a symbol of. Um, when Paul says to take and eat, this is the, the cup and this is the bread, that's a foreshadowing of the dinner that comes after this. It's called a messianic banquet where the saints, those who are in Christ, get to feast, literally feast with the lamb, not on the lamb, but with the lamb for all eternity. First Corinthians says this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So for those of us that are in Christ, as we partake in communion, we take the cup, which represents Christ's blood, and we take the, the bread, which represents his body. And we're reminded then that Revelation 9 did not happen before the cross, it comes after the cross. And the only reason we have hope when we read something like Revelation 9 is because everything that is about to come against the unrighteous here in the text most certainly came against Jesus first. And so as you take communion, you ingest that in and you allow that to form and reform in you the gospel. And then it drives you out on mission. The book of Revelation, specifically chapter 9, should lead you to confess, it should lead you to repent, it should lead you to worship, and then it should lead you to mission. That's the way they should take it. Amen? For those of you that are saints, the table's open.